0: Please remain standing in honor of God's Word. This morning we're going to look at Matthew. That's Matthew eighteen twenty-one to 35. And Brian, could you do me a favor? Could you bring up that, uh, that board right there on the tripod? And I think we have some markers there as well. I'm calling this message the state of the church. And I'll explain... Um, the reason for that, um, a little more, in a little while. But Matthew 18:21 to 35, this is God's inspired word. Then Peter came up and said to him, "Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times?" Jesus said to him, "I do not say to you seven times, but." Seventy times seven. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him ten thousand talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payments to be made. So the servant fell on his knees imploring him, Be patient with me and I will pay you everything. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. And they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt so also my Heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from the heart. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, we thank You for this word. I want to pray that Your Holy Spirit will speak to us. Father, every single one of us need the message this morning. I pray that we will hear it. Because it is not our brother or sister standing in the need of prayer, it is us, O Lord. We need prayer. We need help. We need to grow. I pray that we will grow individually. I pray that we will grow as families. I pray that we will grow as a church. And I ask this in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. It's been interesting over the years to see the different responses that people have to messages. Uh, Michelle and I just laugh sometimes, and I have shared this with the elders on occasion too, and they, they laugh as well. Um, sometimes, for example, I might be teaching on evangelism and the need to share our faith more and to go out into the community. And after a message like that, someone will come up to me and they'll, they'll say, Pastor, you are so right. I, I was so convicted by the message this morning. I definitely need to love my wife more. <laughs> I'll be like, okay, I never even gave an illustration on marriage, or <laughs> I, I've learned over the years just to say that's that's great, that's wonderful, and realize that God can give whatever message He wants, and <laughs> sometimes I'm just standing here and He's doing whatever He needs to do. Um, I need to share one one funny response. A number of years ago, there was a man who uh, was a new Christian and he just started coming to the church. And every week, I can remember, we'd walk out here and he'd say, oh, pastor, that message was just for me. I, I needed to hear that. And second week, he said the same thing. That message was just, just for me. And he said that about four weeks in a row. On the fifth week, he said, I've been here for four weeks and every message has been for me. and It's been so hard. He said, Finally, God gave me a break this morning. This morning's message wasn't for me. It was for my wife. (laughs) Uh, Unfortunately, uh, sometimes the responses uh, aren't so positive. Sometimes people take it very personally. A number of years ago, I wrote up a paper on baptism. And I didn't realize this, but a little while later, someone said, I mean, I was really offended by that because you and I were talking about baptism. Then a week later, there it is, a big paper on baptism. He says, was that for me or was it just a coincidence? And I said, well, from a human perspective, it was a coincidence. I said, I've been dealing with that issue for years and I was trying to help the congregation see another point of view and I just wrote that paper trying to help everybody out and you just happened to be there that Sunday, so... Really, it was just a coincidence. I wasn't trying to personally attack you. Just trying to help people understand um, what we believe about baptism. Uh, One of the dangers of a topical message like this one is that people in the congregation can wonder, now, is he taking a break from the Gospel of John to give this message just for me? And the fear is that people will think I'm attacking them and I'm singling them out. And I want you to know if somewhere through this message, it comes to your mind, uh, is he giving this message because of me? I just want you to know right up front, I want to put you to ease. And I want you to know right up front, yeah, I'm, I'm giving this message because of you. Because of what you struggle with. And that's because of the universal nature of the problem. Namely, that of extending grace. No one is excluded. I am preaching to myself as well. I am preaching to everybody here. I'm preaching to the choir. We don't have a choir loft. If we did, I'd like to do that one of these days. It'll actually be kind of fun. Uh, This is a message, though, that we all need. Uh, We all need to grow in grace. Now, why am I giving this message? Well, for years now, uh, we have sat in elders meetings and we talk about different issues. And if I had a nickel for every time, we would say as elders, we need to extend more grace here. We need to be more gracious. If, if I had a nickel, they would be so high. Well, I've been the pastor of this church since March of 19. 19- Ninety-eight. And you know, in politics, it's often common to come into office and say, "Well, all these problems are because of the previous administration." Well, when you've been the pastor for thirteen years, I can't say it to the elders, "You know, it's because of the church long before I got here." <laughs> and it, and I say that because it really does hit me because I realize, is this because of my teaching and my preaching? I really do wonder. Is this because I haven't emphasized this in our church that? that our people don't understand the needs here. And I say that again and again, and it it hits me hard. It, It really does. And I look at myself. And recently I was listening to a pastor, and he gave a message called The State of the Church. And I don't know if he does this every year, but I thought, that's kind of a good idea. And then I heard him, and in his tapes, it's kind of interesting. It's not just the message on the tapes, but he has the confession time included as well. And he specifically dealt with a tangible issue in his church. And I thought, that's pretty good. He's, he's dealing with the issue head on. He's saying, this is the issue. This is where we need to learn. This is where we need to grow. And I thought, I, I need to be aware of that. I think I can learn from that. And sometimes there is a need to do that. So I'm giving this message this morning on extending grace because we at Fox Lake Community Church need to be more gracious. And if we're going to move forward with the gospel... And I believe we are moving forward. I'm excited. I really am. We have more members than we've ever had. We're adding new members. Uh, We've met the budget last couple of years, even though the economy's been tough. But if we're going to continue to move forward as a church with the gospel of Jesus Christ, we as a church must be full of grace and truth. Full of grace and truth. And I love that statement. And if you're aware of where that statement comes, you might think we're still in the Gospel of John, because that statement comes from John 1:14. Go ahead and look at that phrase. John 1:14. And while you're turning there, I'm going to draw a little diagram, and hopefully those in the back can see this. Can't see? We have grace on one side and truth on the other side. This is what we read in, in John's Gospel in 1.14. Keep in mind that this is the prologue, so this is really setting the stage for the entire Gospel and Word. And we know that that's Jesus Christ, because we're told in verse 1.1 1, 1, that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then 14 says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, And we have seen His glory. Jesus manifested His glory on many occasions. We're told He would do a miracle or a sign. And Jesus manifested His glory. People saw it. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So we have the incarnation of Jesus Christ and in this incarnation we have a manifestation of the Father which is seen in the Son and this glory is seen in the life of Jesus Christ as He goes about ministering and what we see is grace and truth. That's what we see in Jesus Christ. Now, when you write out a spectrum like this grace and truth I want to ask you a question. Do you think on this spectrum you're more on the grace side or the truth side? And then we could also ask that question about our church. Are we more on the grace side or the truth side? Of course, there are some liberal churches, you know, that just love, love, love and grace, grace, grace and tolerate everybody and every conceivable sin under the sun. But then there are legalistic churches on the other side where we just love truth and Bible study and doctrine and we're all about the truth and we just hammer that with a sledgehammer. Truth, truth, truth. And there's not a lot of extension of grace. And we have to be honest this morning and say that we all fall on one side or the other, generally speaking. Randy Alcorn has a book called the grace and truth paradox. Paradox is an apparent contradiction. It's putting together two things that don't seem to go together, like oil and water. And he calls it the grace and truth paradox because those two don't always seem to go together. At least as Christians, I think we can admit that sometimes it's difficult to put those two together. An issue comes up and it's hard to be gracious and truthful at the same time for different reasons. Uh, The subtitle of the book is, Larry, are you ready? Responding with Christlike Balance. (laughs) And I'm I'm sorry, this is kind of an inside joke between the the elders, because Larry, he he doesn't like that word off. He says, balance makes it sound like we're half over here and half over here. And sometimes we say, Larry, you're getting a little carried away. But he does have a good, good point, in it, and it's made me think. And it was funny. I thought of Larry, and then I read the subtitle. I, I, I had to laugh. But I mention it here for this reason, because drawing it like this, you could think, okay, as a person, as a church, we want to be right smack dab in the middle. We want to be balanced. Okay? But we got to be careful, because that could mean we want to be half truthful and half gracious. That's not what the text says. So I, I need to really give you another diagram that's more biblical. And I'm not an artist, so excuse this, okay? Uh, this is a thermometer. So it's a good thing you told me I, I never would have known. <laughs> okay, and, and once again, we have grace on one side and we have truth on the other side. We don't want to be one half... Gracious, one half, truthful, and then here's you know quarter, three quarters, all the way up to the top. What does John 1.14 say? Jesus Christ was what? Full of grace and truth. Look at Jesus Christ. One hundred percent grace. One hundred percent. Truth. It's like when we call Jesus the God man. He wasn't half God, half man. He was all God, fullness of deity, dwelt in Jesus Christ bodily, and he was fully man. One hundred percent, one hundred percent. I know that's hard to do mathematically, but he was full of God, full of man, full of grace, full of truth. And Randy Alcorn made another observation in this book that I thought was very good. He said, this is really a summary of the attributes of Jesus Christ. And I thought, that's good. If you were here last week, you'll recall that one of the catechism questions was, what is God? And we said, God is, and I don't remember all the, the attributes that were listed, but God is spirit, wisdom, all-powerful, all-presence. And we went down the list. And when we were done, I said, and we're just getting started. Grace and truth summarizes who Jesus is. And I think it's a great summary because it, sorry to use this word, balances out maybe the positive elements along with the negative elements, if I can speak in those terms, even though God, it's all positive, of course. Now notice reading on one sixteen, and from His fullness, talking about Jesus, we have all received grace upon grace. Grace, grace, grace. Makes you want to sing. For the law, truth, was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Interesting. So John mentions it again. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Both of these elements. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side has made Him known. And John is saying, and what we see specifically is grace and truth. So as we go through the Gospel, John is saying, as you observe the ministry of Jesus Christ, you will see full grace and full truth without compromise all throughout his life. And of course, we want to model that. It's not grace at the expense of truth. It's grace that is absolutely essential, especially when you present hard truth. Now, our text this morning to talk about grace is Matthew 18. Before we get to the parable, I want you to see the context that provokes Jesus to give this parable of the kingdom of God. Verse 21, Then Peter came up to Him and said, Lord, how often will I forgive my brother who sins against me? Can you feel the frustration? Peter said, i got this brother and he sins against me. How often should I forgive him when he sins against me? And forgive him. And, and Peter says up to seven times. Now This is what you need to understand. The consensus among the rabbis was that you could forgive a repeated sin three times. But on the fourth time, you didn't have to forgive it. I'm sorry. One, two, three is okay. In this culture, four strikes. Okay? Four strikes and you're out. Peter, big-hearted, liberal, magnanimous, Peter. Thinks Jesus is going to be impressed, I think, when He says, Lord, how many times? Seven times? I'll double what the rabbis say and add one. Jesus is not impressed. 22. Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 70 times seven. Or your translation might read 77 times. Uh, 77 times is probably more accurate. Uh, But either way, Jesus' point is not, okay, don't take this literally, Jesus' point is not that there's an upper limit to your forgiveness. Okay, 77. 78, sorry. Okay, or (laughs) 491. Okay, I'm sorry, that's enough. Okay, this is hyperbole. Jesus, when He says 77 times or 70 times 7, He's saying you got to keep on forgiving. There is no ceiling to your forgiveness. If your brother asks for forgiveness, you have to forgive him again and again and again. Do you want a scary thought? What if God had an upper limit to His sin for us? Sorry, God says... Seventy-eight times you've committed this sin. You've crossed the line. God doesn't do that. We're not to do that as well. And by the way, notice that Peter is wrestling with sin. That's against him. Sometimes we struggle to be gracious or forgiving to a brother and he hasn't even specifically sinned against us. We just think he's living a certain way and we don't like it. We think it's sinful and we're not able to be gracious and forgiving. Colossians three, verses twelve and thirteen is a verse that I think is very instructive for Christians when it comes to being forgiving. Colossians three twelve, Paul writes, "Put on them as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another." And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, just as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Here's how it works. Nine times out of ten, nineteen times out of twenty, forty-nine out of fifty, I don't know. Usually, you just bear with the sin of your brother. Uh, Think of a marriage. How often do you forgive your spouse? They don't ask for forgiveness. You just you forgive them. You know, they speak harshly. You just forgive them. They do something else. You just forgive them. You do the same thing with your kids. You know, they do something. You just you forgive them. You're gracious. Imagine how hard it would be. Is it every time you sin? Bam! You did this. Bam! You did that. And this. Imagine growing up in a home like that. Imagine a marriage like that. It's the same in the body of Christ. It's the same in the marketplace, the neighborhood. Most of the time, you just you bear with one another, which means you just forgive. You don't even say anything. It's just between you and the Lord. But there are times when you're not able to do that. And then you do confront the person. And then you follow what was presented later in Matthew 18, beginning at verse 15. You go to that person and you say, I can't just let this go. This is bothering me. And if they ask for forgiveness, you've won your brother over, it's done. If they don't ask for forgiveness, you take two or three along. If that doesn't work, you bring it between the whole church. But notice very carefully, there has to be forgiveness in the body of Christ. Not optional. One way or another, sin is dealt with, even if it has to be judged through excommunication. So sin is dealt with in the body of Christ. There has to be forgiveness. Now, to help Peter and us understand how and why we should forgive, Jesus gives a parable. 23, therefore, the kingdom of heaven. And remember, if you want to be saved, you have to enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king. And the king, of course, represents God who wished to settle accounts "...with his servants." Now, another aside here. If you have the NIV, anybody have the NIV? Does it say slaves? Oh, it says servants. Okay, this must be another place. Look, The word here in the Greek is doulos, and it means literally slave. And that's important, I think, for Jesus' illustration. He purposely said this person is a slave because they have less capacity... To get out of the debts. But I'm also giving a plug for Sue Biggin and the women's study. Because they're going to go through John MacArthur's book, Slave. And as I said, the Greek word is doulos. It's a very basic Greek word. I took my Greek book off my shelf and I showed Dixie. I said, chapter one, actually it's called lesson one in my Greek grammar is the Greek alphabet. That's what I learned the first week of Greek class. Second lesson, I got my first list of vocabulary words ever. Julas is in the list. Very basic word, and it means slave. And MacArthur uses that word to talk about our relationship with God. And Paul loved that word. He loved to begin his letters like he does in Romans 1. 1. Paul, a slave of Jesus Christ. He loved being a slave of Jesus Christ. Why did he love being a slave? Because his master was wonderful. You don't mind being a slave. When your master gives his life for you, when you're, you have a master who blesses you and treats you like that. But that's what the word means. Doulos. It's a, it's, a, it's a great word, actually. And I mentioned this a number of years ago, but when I was a student at Moody, I, I met a student one time and and he introduced himself and he said, Hi, I'm Dulas." And I said, Doulas? I said, did your parents name you after the, the Greek word for slave? And he said, yes. Uh, they understood. What a privilege. This is our son, Dulas, Slave. Slave of Jesus Christ. So it's actually an honor if you understand it appropriately. Uh, just one other quick little note. This is also important for literal translation. That's why I say in Bible studies, you want to have a literal translation translation. Uh, The more you have just kind of a free flowing paraphrase, you get away from the text and it's easier to twist scripture that way. So you want a more literal translation which helps with some of these Greek words. Okay, so 24, when he began to settle, one of the slaves was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And you say, what is a talent? I have a footnote in my Bible that says a talent was a monetary unit worth about 20 years wages for a laborer. Okay, so I got out my trusty pen and I did some calculating. I said, well, let's just say just for fun. And I I use the board. Maybe some of you are visual like me and this helps. I'll just... Just for fun, I'll I'll write it out. So let's just say, uh, fifty thousand dollars. Okay, just round number to make it uh, easier. Okay, fifty thousand dollars a year, twenty years, right? Okay, twenty years. So we just we just do all the zeros. You remember that from math? Did I do it right? Number one, two, three, four, five. One, two, three, four, five. There has to be six. All right. Million dollars. So, if you make $50,000 a year, you work for 20 years, that's that's a million dollars. That's a talent. What did he owe him? 10,000 talents. So, we have to multiply that times 10,000. You kids keeping up with me? Okay. And we do the zeros. I'm just going to do it this way and make it easier. Zero, 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 zero. And that is, somebody tell me, $10 billion. $10 billion, okay? This slave, common laborer, owes the king $10 billion. Don't ask me how he got into a position where he owed the king $10 billion. I don't know. But he owes him $10 billion billion dollars. Is he going to be able to pay that back? Could you pay that back? Very few exceptions. Bill Gates, Warren Buffett, few others. Uh, if you owe ten billion dollars, you're in big trouble. This guy's in big trouble. That's the point. Twenty five. And since he could not pay, that's obvious, his master ordered him to be sold. Remember, he's a slave. So now he's going to sell the slave and all that he and his wife and children and all that he had so payment could be made. Now you need to know this as well. Uh D.A. Carson mentioned in his commentary that top price for a slave was one talent, but usually a slave could be sold for one tenth of a talent. Even if we granted top dollar for this man, his wife and his children, is that even close to paying off the debts? No, and that's the point. So by selling off the family, don't think, okay, they're taking care of the debt. They are not taking care of the debt at all. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. That's a joke. He is not going to be able to pay everything that he owns. Uh, He does not need the king to be patient. He needs the king to be merciful. He needs the king to be gracious because the amount is too huge. Which is why Jesus told this parable with such a huge amount so that it would be clear to His listeners that you cannot pay back this kind of a debt. That's the point. And then we read in verse 27, And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave the debt. That word pity is a great word. It also means compassion. We've talked about it before. The Greek word is one of those funny words. Splachna. Some of you, Ray, remember me referring to that in an earlier message. It means bowels. It talks about being moved from the depth of your being towards another person so that you exercise pity or compassion towards that people. Towards another person, I think if we were more compassionate, we would be more gracious. We would be more forgiving. And here's the thing: a lot of times we have no idea what a person has been through. And if we knew what someone was going through, maybe in the midst of our presenting truth, we would also do that with a spirit of grace. We live in a culture that is attacking the traditional, which means the biblical view, of marriage. Our own president thinks it's unconstitutional to defend the view of marriage of one man and one woman. And that is frightening. And we have homosexuals who are saying, no, we need to change the definition of marriage. And we should be worried about that because that will have a great effect on its culture. But as we deal with these homosexuals, Let's do it graciously. This last week, I was listening to an interview with Greg Quinlan. He calls himself an ex-gay. He is now the president of POX, P-O-X, Parents of Ex-Gays and Gays. And he was being interviewed on a radio show, and he was asked how he entered into the gay lifestyle. And he says, I can recall when the change came about. He said, I was eight years old. I was the oldest of four children and my dad beat me on a regular basis. He said, when I was eight years old, I was helping my dad work on the car and I saw what was coming. I saw my dad getting angry. My dad turned towards me. I knew what was coming. He said, I beat him to the punch. I said, you hate me, don't you? And my father said, I do hate you. And he took the Lord's name in vain and he cursed at his son. He said, I already knew it at eight years of age, but then I heard it. Imagine. An eight-year-old told by a father that he hates him. And then he went on, and I don't remember the time frame exactly, but a boy that was about three years old, or maybe a couple years later, introduced him to pornography, and they used it together as a prelude to what he called voluntary molestation that took place not just once or twice, but over a period of years. And he said it was voluntary because for the first time in my life there was a man or a male that I looked up to who was showing me love and affection and acceptance. And I was just like, wow. So on the one hand, yes, we don't compromise the truth. It's wrong. But if we could see maybe why they got to a certain point, what they've been through, maybe we could say, I'm sorry, it's wrong. And we could do so in a spirit of grace instead of just seeing them as a dismembered person. And I think even in this congregation, we, we might be surprised at what some people have been through. And if we would just hear their story, maybe all of a sudden we might be a little more gracious to realize, wow, he or she has, has really been through a lot. Grace and truth. We need both side by side and we need to be full Of both. And we need to see in this parable that God has extended grace towards us. Is this not the gospel of grace? We have this huge debt, we can't pay it back, and God releases us and says, I forgive you. That's the point. Each one of us are $10 billion sinners. Each one of us, we're wretched. If we could only see that, if we could only see how much God has forgiven us. You know, one of the benefits to coming to Christ when you're a little older is you realize, I really am a sinner. It's a, little, it's a little easier because you can point to a lot of wretched sin. I remember when I was at the Korean church before I came here, we went out for dinner one time and we sat around the table and we all said, where do you think you would be if you weren't a Christian? And we, we all talked about where we'd be in jail, dead, dead. Uh, intervening on behalf of homeless puppies. We just, we just went right on down the list. Where, where would we be without Jesus Christ? And we knew because we were saved later in life. One of the benefits, when we sing Amazing Grace, who saved a wretch like me, I have no problem saying wretch. Ten billion dollar wretch. But God's forgiven me. That, that's each one of us. I don't care if you became a sinner when you were four years old. It was funny, I remember one time at Moody, uh, President Jill Stoll was giving an illustration, and he, he talked about when God saved him, he said, I was neck deep in the muck and mire of sin and by depravity, and God reached down into that pit and he pulled me up. And I remember hearing that message thinking, yeah, but I remember a previous message you gave, and you said you became a Christian when you were four. How much muck and mire were you in at four years of age? <laughs> But he was right. If you understand, even you're four years old, you grew up in a Christian home, if you can understand sin as you grow over time, it really was that bad. Even if it was just talking back to your mom or dad, it really was that bad. But God rescued you. And that's each one of us. 28, the story turns. But when that same servant went out, and isn't that interesting? The king brought him into his presence He's going out. He's just left the king's presence. His heart is probably still beating because he thought he and his family were all going to be sold as slaves. It's just starting to calm down. There's probably still sweat on his brow because he thought he was going to be sold. As he's going out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. Now, in the past, I've misrepresented this. In the past I've said ten bucks. Not ten bucks. What's what's a denarii? I didn't know what a talent was, I don't know what a denarii is. A denarii is a day's wages. A hundred denarii is a hundred days' wages. So if we use the same kind of figures we're talking seventeen, eighteen thousand dollars roughly. That's a fairly significant debt. Why does Jesus use that number. I think for a couple of reasons. In order not to minimize the sin against us, it's not just ten dollars. Sometimes it's significant sin against us. It it really is significant. But by comparison to what we've been forgiven, it's not very much, right? That's the point of the number here. And what does this slave do? He turns to another slave seizes him, chokes him. Look at that. Chokes him. Grabs him around the neck saying, pay me what you owe. His fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay. Does that sound familiar? Mm-hmm. Have patience with me and I will pay. That's, that's what this slave asked for, right? And he was granted <laughs> not just patience, clemency, grace, forgiveness. Forgiveness. But he refused and went out and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. He received grace, but he couldn't extend grace to others. Jesus isn't done with the story. People are watching this. 31. When his fellow servants or slaves saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. And they went and reported to the master all that had taken place. They're watching this. They're saying... This is incredible. They're absolutely appalled at what they are seeing. And of course, that happens in the church sometimes, doesn't it? Sometimes we are appalled by what we see taking place in the church. Now, here's what we need to understand when it comes to grace. Grace works both ways. Okay? There's always two sides to an issue, and there always needs to be grace on both sides. I'll just give you one little issue. I could give you many, but just to kind of illustrate a point. Um, Some of you watch TV. Some of you don't watch TV. Caleb asked me in the car yesterday on the way home, why do some people not watch TV? I said, well, some people don't watch TV as Christians because there's a lot of bad stuff on TV and, and they don't want that coming into their homes or their children or they don't want to waste time sitting in front of the TV so they don't, They don't have a television. This is what I'm trying to do. I'm trying not to break the ninth commandment and bear false witness against my neighbor. Notice that I did not say, because they're a bunch of self-righteous, legalistic, whatever. Notice that I I didn't do that. I tried to present them fairly. So if I could go to them and say, is that fair? And they say, yeah, that's not the only reason. But yeah, thank you for presenting my side fairly. I want to be gracious. On the other side, if they're asked, they don't have a TV, why do some Christians watch TV? I hope they don't say because some Christians could care less about the filth that comes through the TV in their house. And they, just, they don't care. They have no standards whatsoever. I hope they don't say that. I hope they say, well, because they realize that there are some things that television offers. There's news that can... And maybe there's an appropriate place for... Uh, relaxing and watching certain programs. See what I'm saying? I'm saying? Whatever side of the issue you're on, I hope you're presenting the other side in the, the best possible light and not assuming the worst. And I could go on. That's just one issue. And I could go on and on with different issues. And in our church alone, there's probably 100,000 issues. Seriously. I could talk about women's clothing. I could talk about the use of alcohol. I could talk about... Right on down the list. Okay? Right, right on down... In, in a sense, we're one church, but if you if talked about our different values or standards, we, we might be ten different churches. Here's what's going to happen. We're going to split into ten different churches and go our own way. Or we're going to come together. There's only one way that we're going to be able to come together in a church that takes truth seriously. And that's by presenting the truth in the context of grace. And understanding that great aphorism in essentials unity and non essentials diversity and all things charity or love. This doesn't mean that we just accept whatever views other people. It doesn't mean that we challenge one another. I have benefited from being challenged by people who are more conservative than me. They, they bring me over. I've been challenged by people who are more liberal than me, saying, hey, you can enjoy some things maybe you didn't think you could enjoy. I've benefited from both. We want both. We help one another. We keep one another, sorry Larry, in balance sometimes. <laughs> so, yeah. So that's healthy. That's healthy, and we can do that. We can do that with a hundred issues if we do so graciously, graciously. If we don't do it graciously, we can't do it with a single issue. So we need both. We need to be full of truth, and full of grace. And if we have a body like that, we can welcome so many different people. That's good. That's healthy. Some some people are, are new Christians. They, they haven't heard things. And if you can be gracious to them, you have an opportunity to teach them. But if the hammer comes down, boom, they're, they're going to go somewhere else where they're, where they're accepted. Very, very important that we have both grace and truth. And, and I've, I've heard this before. Now, let me just say this as long as I'm on application. Uh, I've heard people say, Well, what will I tell my kids? I'll just give you another issue. Might as well just throw out all the issues. Halloween came up. And this was kind of a funny one to me because they used to participate in Halloween. Now they don't. What will we tell our kids? And I said, well, I don't know. Give them instruction. Tell them we used to participate in Halloween, but we don't really like it because of all the stuff attached to it. And some Christians have different convictions. And it's almost presented sometimes, well, what will I tell my kids? And I'm like, what do you mean? What will you tell your kids? You have to talk to your kids. I, I hope we don't need a commercial. You can, you can tell I'm a television watcher. <laughs> I, I hope we don't need a commercial that says, others are talking to your kids about drugs. You talk to them. I, I hope that's... Of course we have to talk to our kids. So i got to talk to Caleb about television. I'll have to talk to him about a hundred other issues. That's what we do as parents. We have to talk to our kids. And we're going to have to explain why some people in the body of Christ have these family rules in their household and we have these family rules over... Here and we explain that. And we say we're a little different, and then we extend grace over here, grace over here, and if that happens we can come together and we can get along and the church can move forward and it can be glorious. Now it continues on thirty two. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant. Notice that. Jesus says, you wicked servant. It's a wicked thing not to extend grace or forgiveness when a person asks it for it. It's a wicked thing. And you might be tempted to ask, how wicked? Let's read on. I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, gracelessness angers God. His master delivered him to the jailers. Sorry, but I got to get a little more literal once again. I have a footnote for jailers in the ESV, and it says, Greek, torturers. Literally, the king delivers him to the torturers. He delivers him to be tormented. What does this mean? That means that he's cast out of the kingdom. And he's going to be tortured. How long is he going to be tortured? Until he should pay all that debt. Which he can never do. Which means he will be tormented day and night forever and ever. This is hell. Did you get that? This is hell. This is how serious this issue is. And to help us to be gracious, I want you to see two things very clearly. Number one, we are great sinners and God has forgiven us. If we can see that, then we can see that by comparison, my brother really does just have a speck in his eye. He really does just have a minor debt compared to my debts. And we can deal with Him accordingly. If we could just see that, we could be more gracious. And if we can see how how serious grace and forgiveness is to God, I think we would also tremble when we realize, and again, this includes every single one of us in this room, we all struggle with this. None of us in this room is full of grace. And we would see when we're not being full of grace, God is not pleased. God is not pleased. This is so important. And that's where he concludes, So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother, and this phrase is important, from the heart. That, that means more than just I forgive you, but not really forgiving them. And this is hard. This is talking about genuine forgiveness. And you say, how do you do that? Well, sometimes you do it with great help from God. Sometimes you do it by crying out to God. God, I'm having a hard time forgiving this person. It's really hard to forgive a father that beat you when you were little. It's really hard to forgive the person who molested you. It's really hard to forgive that ex-spouse who did such and such. That's why we need God. That's why we need the Holy Spirit. So that our lives can be transformed. But that's what we have to do. I don't know if you realized it, but you prayed something very dangerous this morning. We prayed the Lord's Prayer. And in that prayer, this is what you said, and I said it. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. God, forgive me just as I forgive my brothers and sisters in Christ. Or, one pastor turned it around to help us to see what we're really saying. Lord, be bitter and resentful towards me like I'm bitter and resentful towards my brother and sister. Ouch. Right? Voddy You can't say amen. You better say ouch. Forgive me, Lord, my debts, my sins, just as I, in the exact same way that I forgive or don't forgive my brothers and sisters and to make sure that we don't miss the point, after Jesus gave the Lord's Prayer, He then gave a brief commentary. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your Heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Serious business. Something to keep in mind when we say the Lord's Prayer here at the church. This is a big issue. This is an important issue to God. That we be people of grace and truth. And again, to say that we're a people or a church full of grace and full of truth is to say that we're a church like Jesus Christ. It's to say that we're a church that manifests the glory of God in our midst, just like Jesus manifested the glory of His Father in His ministry. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank You for the grace and the truth that is in this congregation. But Father, may we continue to grow. May we continue to flourish. May we as a body really be full of Grace and truth at the same time, even as we struggle to bring these two together. Father, help us. We need Your Spirit. We will not live this kind of life apart from Your Spirit. So forgive us for our failings and help us as we seek to move forward. In Jesus' name, Amen.